Hey guys, welcome to the Bill Barnwell Show. I am Bill Barnwell, and today it's a solo show. We're going through your mailbag questions about the NFL offseason and beginning to preview the 2022 NFL season. A lot of fun stuff to talk about, but first, wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast. Three times a week, the Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology and music, plus the very best analysis of the games we're all watching, plus a community of guests which will feel like your closest friends in no time. That's the Right Time with Bomani Jones, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays with Dominique Foxworth for Foxworth Friday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and Wednesday and Friday episodes are also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. Okay, let's get to some of your mailbag questions from Twitter over the past couple days. Thanks so much for sending in questions. A lot of good stuff. I'm going to finish up with a really fun one about the worst move of the entire NFL offseason over the past five years, last five NFL offseasons. But let's get to some other questions first. Let's start with Jeff Diamond 612 who asks about the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, does Quise get to keep his nerd card after the Vikings draft? Just the idea of a nerd card in the NFL seems funny to me for for Dolphins, for Vikings general manager, Kwese Adolfo Mensa. Uh, I like the trades, he says, but why spend three of four high-value picks on non-premium positions like safety, guard, and off-ball linebacker? And this is a really interesting question because I think I really do try to encourage teams to spend their valuable picks, their first and second rounders, on premium positions like quarterback, like left tackle, like corner, um, like edge rusher, and now to an increasing extent wide receiver, because number one, you're getting a significant discount on what those positions are worth uh, in free agency when it comes to market value contracts, and number two, because we're just not any more confident about the picks at non-premium positions than we are at premium positions. It, just because you're taking a guard or you're taking uh, an inside linebacker does not mean that they're any more likely to hit than players at more premium spots on the field. So. If you're not going to have a sure thing either way, why not take a shot on the more valuable pick, the one that has more upside, um, I think is what I generally argue. But I would say with Adolfo Mensa, there's a couple of things that come into play. Number one, there are people out there who would make a case that safety is a premium position. I, I can't speak to what Adolfo Mensa values. I think we'll see more as time goes on. But I do think that safety can be considered a premium position in some spaces. Also wouldn't shock me if the safety market took a major leap forward in the next 12 months with Jesse Bates, Micah Fitzpatrick, and Derwin James all coming due for new extensions. With the Vikings, I mean, this isn't a Jets kind of rebuild where you have a team that is just bereft of talent on all parts of the roster. And really, you're just adding whatever you can year after year to supplement what you had. Uh, the Vikings have a pretty defined roster right now. They didn't re didn't rebuild, they retooled. Um, they didn't need to add a wide receiver in the short term, didn't need to add a quarterback with Kirk Cousins under contract for another year. Um, tackle, pretty set. Um, edge rusher with, with Daniel Hunter coming back for another year and them signing Zedaria Smith to what is really a one-year deal. Not really a position they had to hit too hard. So, you know, I, I think they had weaknesses and tried to address them in the draft. But... I'd also sit here and look at that Quise Adolfo Mensah's resume and think he's a super smart guy and he was in San Francisco for a long time and Trent Balky and John Lynch were very comfortable using even first round picks on players who played non-premium positions. So I don't think it's worth taking away his nerd card, whatever that would be, a pocket protector, a TI-83 or something. But I also don't think he's Dave Gettleman because he didn't draft premium positions in one in his first NFL draft. So I think it's one to watch, but I don't think it's one to draw any 
dramatic conclusions from at first glance. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize I even put this one in there. Uh, someone tweeted, way to feed into the help for Justin Fields narrative. I criticized the Bears for not adding enough this offseason. Not like they totally changed their entire team or anything. And I think this is a classic example of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like, yes, they made changes, but they did not make significant investments in the offensive line, did not make significant investments at receiver, and did not do enough to help out their second-year quarterback. And I think as you're evaluating Justin Fields, if you're going to spend anywhere, you might as well spend there. The Bears did try to sign Larry Ogunjobi, who I think is a very talented defensive tackle, but not a player who is going to make Justin Fields' life any easier. Still guys out there who they could add. I mean, Dwayne Brown is still a free agent. Eric Fisher still a free agent. Still think they could do something to help out their second-year quarterback. Naturally Fitz asks, breaking news. This is exciting. You just bought the Seattle Seahawks. Well, I am now broke, uh, so that's going to be a problem. But what's your next step is the question I don't think this is a solvable problem in one step. I think the first thing I would do is probably sign DK Metcalf to an extension. It's going to be expensive, $25, $26 million a year. I'm willing to pay that amount. A guy who's been so productive early in his career, a little concerned about his frame, you know, bigger receivers like that can struggle as they get older, but I think it's worth taking a risk. Maybe I trade for Baker Mayfield because I don't think they can trade for Jimmy Garoppolo. I think getting someone who's not Drew Locke in there, but you know, I think the, the the tease of an answer is to make a big picture decision about a quarterback or about Carroll himself as the coach, but those moves are not really addressable right now. It's not the beginning of the offseason. It's the end of the offseason, really, when it comes to player acquisition. So I think it's more about what can we do to field a more competent team in 2022, and what can we do to sort of uh, you know continue to build our infrastructure for years to come when we do have a shot at that quarterback of the future. A scribbled eagle asks a really good question a really big football nerd question that i gave some serious thought to what is the single worst position group in the entire nfl wow what a question the bear secondary he says might be a good starting point but there might be some other dumpster fire groups out there and i have to say and this is probably a reflection on where the bears are right now i don't even know if their secondary is the worst part of that roster the bears offensive line with larry borum Kevin jenkins who barely played last year cody whitehair Lucas Patrick and Sam Mustafer, that is probably worse. At least Jalen Johnson has been a pretty good pro so far, and Eddie Jackson was great earlier in his career. Um, it's not good when you have position groups on either side of your off offense and defense that you can make plausible cases are the worst at their relative spots in the entire NFL. That's kind of scary. A couple ones that came to mind for me, Falcons Edge with Lorenzo Carter, Arnold Abikide, D'Angelo Malone, a couple of rookies uh, in the mix there. Maybe their linebackers group as well, once they do cut Deion Jones, who has been disappointing over the past couple of years, but is still an NFL caliber linebacker. I mean, that is a scary, scary lack of talent on the edge. At least they're young. That's exciting enough, I guess. But I mean, that is a team that is in serious trouble. The Atlanta Falcons talked about them with um, on the Sitting, ed Sitting Edge podcast. No, what's Charles's podcast? No, uh, Exempt List. The Exempt List with four verts. Recommend you check that out as well. Talked a lot about the NFC South on that podcast with Charles McDonald. Very fun show. I would also say Texans quarterbacks with Davis Mills, who I'm pessimistic about. I'm not pessimistic about his chances. I know he was good at the end of last year, but that was with a very easy schedule. He was playing a tougher schedule earlier in the campaign, but Davis Mills, Kyle Allen, Jeff Driscoll, Kevin Hogan, that is a scary prop of quarterbacks. Good chance 
We see most of those quarterbacks play, and a good chance they really struggle in 2022. Hans Voss, Hans H. Voss, not sure how to pronounce that person's name. Apologize for that. They ask, where will Julio Jones end up? It's kind of surprising. We have not seen Julio Jones really draw any interest throughout the offseason. Julio Jones would not have qualified for a uh, for a compensation pick or a compensatory pick, so he could have signed earlier. It would not have cost teams any amount of money or any amount of particular uh, draft capital in the future to sign Julio Jones, and yet there has not really been a market. I mean, the tape last year, frankly, was pretty bad. He did not like his old self. Tennessee, a year after trading away a second-round pick, you know, sort of recognized it as a sunk cost and moved on. It's rough. And for Julio Jones, I mean, there's that question that does Julio Jones want to play? I mean, he is a guy who's made a lot of money, very successful, has been great his entire career pretty much until a year ago. Might unnecessarily want to be out there just running routes, the sick of running routes. I don't know. I can't say what his motivation is. Um, I still think he can be a viable NFL wide receiver, a, a competent starter to me, I think, given what we saw last year like to see him in a more pass-friendly offense and see him maybe closer to 100%, but I argued the Colts. I, I thought the reunion with Matt Ryan made sense. I think the Colts still need to add receivers. I don't think you can count on Paris Campbell. I think maybe you could move Julio into the slot more, maybe have him sort of try to get that Larry Fitzgerald world where he's in the slot more frequently as his career goes on, but doesn't seem to be happening. I think you could say the Packers certainly could use a veteran wide receiver. I mean, uh, I think there's a really logical fit there. And the Niners, maybe if the Niners have issues with Dugo Samuel in training camp or if Brandon Ayuk gets hurt or if they need someone, certainly Julio Jones has a great track record with Kyle Shanahan in the past. Again, he's not going to be the Julio Jones from 2015 or 2016, but can he be a, a number two or a number three? I think he can if he wants to win a Super Bowl. I think he could go to one of those teams, and I think he'd be in good position to compete for a championship here at the end of his career. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8 Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Diet Woke Lime on Twitter? Some interesting handles today on Twitter asks, Quarterbacks can buy an island, and wide receivers aren't far behind, but what's the position that has a huge effect on the football field that doesn't bankrupt a top doesn't bankrupt a team if they pay at the level of the top of the market? What's the most undervalued position in today's NFL? Good question. Talked about this with Robert Mays a little bit a couple weeks ago. I think it is center. Center is a position where it makes so much sense that you'd add significant value by adding someone who was really good. Number one, you're protected to some extent against A-gap blitzes. You have a better offensive lineman. There are some centers who really can't handle those on their own. Other centers can do it at a much higher level. Um, that helps. Number two, your center is going to help set protections. So if you have a quarterback, especially a young quarterback who's inexperienced, doesn't necessarily have those reps of seeing NFL caliber blitzes and NFL caliber defensive coordinators drawing stuff up, 
centers are going to see things. They're going to call stuff out. They're going to be able to adjust on the fly. They're going to be much better about handling those pressures so your quarterback doesn't get killed. Um, you know, I think about that Justin Fields game last year for the Bears where you played against the Browns and they were a mess. And Sam Mustafer, who was playing center, just was not up to the task. They was they were making mental mistakes. They were making, making physical mistakes. It, it just it was impossible for that offensive line to succeed. And we've seen a lot of quarterbacks take leaps forward after adding a great center. Think about Matt Ryan, who added Alex Mack that year with the Falcons, and he won a league MVP. I think about Josh Allen getting Mitch Morse from the Chiefs, and that helped him take a big step forward. I think centers have a huge role in the offense, and I think they are probably underpaid. I think there's definitely a case to be made that the top center should be making, you know, certainly top-tier guard money, if not necessarily top-tier tackle money. Farmer JF asked about a really interesting graph that was going around. He says, in the second half of last season, the Patriots had by far the highest run percentage on early downs in the league. I believe this was on second downs, to be specific. Did Mac Jones put enough on tape to expect him to get the keys to the offense this year, or at least a key, or can we expect continued game managing? And this was a consistent thing for Mac Jones throughout the year. Second down, they were very conservative and mad. The Patriots got to third down. It was like a, a a pitcher who can only throw 80 miles an hour. It was all off-speed stuff. It was all junk. It was all screens and draws and quick game and stuff to get the ball out of Mac Jones' hand and not put him in a situation where he had to find a solution on third down in situations where he had to pass. And that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the Patriots were trying to be smart, trying to be proactive. They knew that Mac Jones was probably not going to win them games last year, that it was going to be the defense and the running game, and Mac Jones, you know, taking advantage of stuff on early downs, especially on first down. And I think that's fine. That was a viable formula. I think he's not going to turn into 2020 Tom Brady or 2019 Tom Brady overnight. That's not realistic. But I think you want to see steps in the right direction. You want to see him hit those shots when he does have to throw on third and long. And you want to see them put him in situations like that more frequently, not all the time. But I mean, hey, think about Joe Judge, right? Joe Judge is the guy who had Jake Fromm run a quarterback draw on third and long. Clearly, if he's calling the plays, he's super conservative when it comes to protecting a young quarterback, probably too much so. I think with Mac Jones, you want to see him take more shots. It doesn't have to be, you know, league leading or anything, but I want to see what he can do in those situations because at some point he's going to have to more often. You can only go throw so many screens and so many draws before the offense is just not moving forward. MFFL Kamish asks, Dallas has this huge Z contract hanging over them in their cap. Is there any hope in Dallas? So I think so. I mean, I think the Cowboys are just fine. There's They've made some changes this offseason. It did hurt them, of course, to have that Z contract on the books. But this is the last year. I mean, the Cowboys, it was very telling. They did not restructure Ezekiel Elliott's contract this year, which is something they do with all of their veterans to create cap space. So the fact that they did not restructure Zeke this year makes it very clear, to me at least, unless he's phenomenal this season, that they're moving on from Zeke in 2023. That free up nearly $11 million on their 2023 cap as a post-June 1st release. Now, the question to me is, are they going to use that money to re-sign Tony Pollard? Because Tony Pollard has been a more productive back than Zeke the past couple of years. He's been better in similar situations than Zeke. And he's not going to cost as much as Zeke does over the next several seasons if they keep Zeke on his current contract. So I think if they resign Pollard to a deal like the one Austin Eckler got. I think they'll probably use up a good amount of that cap space. Could see them certainly drafting a running back next year, but I do think that the sort of the specter of that Z contract 
is removed from the equation unless he's great this year, which is it's a good problem to have. But unless he's great this year, he's gone in 2023. Longsword plus one asks, what justifies a David and Joku type contract for a player who has not put up those numbers? And that's a fair question. David and Joku, I mean, the raw numbers for David and Joku have not been great. He has been fine, certainly a playmaker at times, a guy who looks like a force in the red zone, but hasn't topped four touchdowns in a single season as a pro, has one year with more than 500 receiving yards, and that was with 639 in his second season. A guy who's already had knee issues. I mean, those are all concerns. David Njoku is still a guy who it feels like is relying more on the expectation of what he can be versus what he's actually shown at the NFL level. But I will say, I think he's a little better than those raw numbers might indicate. And Joku was eighth in the NFL in yards per route run amongst tight ends last year, ahead of guys like Dalton Schultz, Hunter Henry, and TJ Hawkinson. Those are pretty impressive guys. They're all making significant amounts of money, or Hawkinson's going to make significant amounts of money. Schultz on the franchise tag. Hunter Henry got a big deal. Um, I think the Browns have not used him all that often. I think he's been more often used as a blocker and used in two and three tight end sets. So I think they sort of figure, okay, we're going to take the training wheels off and he's going to play a bigger role. And maybe we're, we're paying him for the guy he's supposed to be, which is usually not a good move and I wouldn't recommend it. But maybe they see him as a guy who will be an 800, 900 yard receiver in a larger role this upcoming season. His deal is basically a two-year $25 million contract. So that's basically two franchise tags, a little bit more. I think it's 24.1 for two franchise tags. And I, you know what? If it were me, I would not have made this move. I'd rather have gone out and signed you know, CJ Uzoma and a second tight end had more depth. Um, they're spending a lot of money on offense with Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, Ari Cooper, Deshaun Watson, Jack Conklin, their two guards, and eventually Jedrick Wills. But I think we'll probably see them move on from Hunt either this offseason or next offseason. Maybe Conklin's out the door as well then. I, I think, you know, they their offense is going to be evolving from what we've seen over the past couple of years with Baker Mayfield in the fold. The underscore read asks about Trevor Lawrence, and he says, if Trevor Lawrence is not considered the best quarterback in the AFC South, very low bar there by the end of the year, is it fair to say he's a bust relative to his draft status? So the other AFC South quarterbacks, it's Ryan Tannehill and Malik Willis in Tennessee, Davis Mills and the guys I mentioned earlier in Houston, and Matt Ryan is certainly a very solid quarterback still in Indianapolis. So I would say no. I, I don't think that's a fair thing to say. Guys grow at different paces. And I think with year one, more so than the vast majority of quarterbacks, I think it was hopeless for Trevor Lawrence. I think that offense was so poorly coached that there was just no hope. We talked about it a little bit with Nate Tice last week or a couple of weeks ago on this podcast where we talked about just how the offense just wasn't running routes to the right depth, how guys weren't on the same page. There were mental mistakes on pretty much every single play. I think it was an absolute disaster. And we've seen first overall picks in those kind of situations struggle before improving later on in their careers when they were in better spots. Guys like Vinny Testaverde and Alex Smith. I mean, that 49ers offense with Alex Smith was a disaster. He was a bust for several seasons before, hey, Jim Harbaugh shows up and suddenly he's, you know, making it to the NFC Championship game. He looks like he's a totally different quarterback because there was better coaching and better pieces around him. So I'm very optimistic about Doug Peterson's chances there. And I think Lawrence is going to get there. If it doesn't happen this year, it's fine. But I think you want to see growth, of course. Grits X Gravy. Interesting handle. Asks, should the Jets hedge their bets with Zach Wilson, another second-year quarterback, and acquire Baker Mayfield or Jimmy G? Kind of like how Miami has Teddy Bridgewater as a fail-safer to a Tango Vialoa. Well, 
I guess the question is, how much is it going to cost? If it's Baker Mayfield for $6.5 million, like it is for Teddy Bridgewater or Jimmy G for $6.5 million, and there's no draft pick compensation attached, that's reasonable enough. I think I would do that. But I, I think if those guys are free agents or they're being traded for a relatively low cost, I think they would rather go to places where they can start. And the Jets should not offer those guys that opportunity. I think with Tua, because he's in year three, because he struggled at times during his first two seasons, I think if he struggles again in year three, I think there's a viable case for moving on to Teddy Bridgewater as the starter and giving him the job if he can succeed. I think with Zach Wilson now being entering a second season, it's still too early for that. I think the third year is going to be where Zach Wilson will be really judged. And if if he's struggling still at that third season, then I think you can talk about maybe bringing in someone to really give him competition for that starting job. Mikey Moles asks a hypothetical. I love hypothetical questions, guys. If you ask a mailbag question and it's a hypothetical like this, I'm almost always going to answer it. Mikey Moles asks, say the Eagles could have gotten Russell Wilson for all three first rounders. Would they be better off than currently constructed? Presumably no Jordan Davis, AJ Brown, or the future picks from the Saints in that Saints trade. And because of Russ's cap hit, that means no James Bradbury and possibly no Hassan Reddick as well. Oh boy, I love what the Eagles did this offseason. I think they were in the top five in my offseason rankings. Just came out for ESPN last week. Still think I would get Russell Wilson. <laughs> I just, Russell Wilson is incredible. And I don't know that he's a culturally great fit for Philadelphia. I think they like their athletes to be a little different from Russell Wilson's sort of like goody two-shoes act. But he's also really good. And at the end of the day, that's what matters most when it comes to being uh, a great player. So I think Russell Wilson would be a success in Philadelphia. And I think he would have been a significant addition in the way that as good as Jordan Davis and AJ Brown are going to be, and as good as that Saints draft pick could be, there's only so many people like Russell Wilson in the league. I think the, the Eagles with their roster and Russell Wilson, I don't know if they're a Super Bowl contender, but I think they're favorites to win the NFC East ahead of the Cowboys. And I do say, I think Wilson's going to be good for another full contract, another five years. I'd be comfortable giving him a new deal. And I, I think the Eagles are flexible enough that they would still have gotten at least one of those two guys, either Reddick or Bradbury. I think they'd probably prefer Reddick because they were so focused on the defensive line. Um, but I think Reddick would have still been able to land there. You have to be a little flexible with your cap situation. And I think they also get something back for Jalen Hurts or Gardner Minshew, who reportedly had some trade interest when the Eagles were talking to Nick Foles. So um, I, I, it's different, certainly, and they're, they're worse other positions. But I do think the upgrade of quarterback from Hurts to Wilson is still worth it. Colin C. Quill, another young quarterback question. So many young quarterbacks to talk about here. What week does Malik Willis overtake Ryan Tannehill? And I, I sympathize with people who are frustrated with Tennessee and Ryan Tannehill. But I will tell you this much. Ryan Tannehill was not good in that postseason loss to the Bengals. He threw, I think, three picks. You know, one of them was a, a good throw that Jesse Bates has made an incredible play on. One of them, a pass he threw, like a, a swing pass directly to um, one of the Bengals' corners. I forget who. And then that pass that bounced off his receiver's arms and into a linebacker's hands for the third interception of the game, set up the game-winning field goal. And that's fine. Uh, Mike Hilton, of course, had that pick, the second pick for the Bengals in that game. Not a good performance. Certainly fair to say. And Ryan Tannehill, his numbers last year, okay. Not especially impressive. 21 touchdowns, 14 picks double his interception total from the year prior. Um, but here's what I will say. 
first and foremost, this is going to be a run-first offense. So Ryan Tannehill is not going to be the guy who wins them games. I mean, he's going to hopefully hold his end of the bargain up. And I can understand being a little frustrated with having a quarterback who is only okay when they're paying him significant amounts of money. But that's the bet they made a couple of years ago. They made the bet where they were going to pay Ryan Tannehill for three seasons after his breakout year with Tennessee. And there's not much they could have done about it. But I think fans are more desperate to move on from Ryan Tannehill than Tennessee is. Once his contract clears up after this year, will they make a different move? Yeah, absolutely. I think they could do that. Is that going to be Malik Willis? I don't know. I mean, he did not require significant draft capital. It wasn't like they traded up into the first round and grabbed Malik Willis. Because that's when you do that, that makes me think, okay, you want this guy to be your quarterback in the future. You see him as that guy. When you draft a guy in the third round, that's very different. That's not he's going to be our guy. That's, well, he might get a shot here or there. If Tennessee can get Jimmy Garoppolo next offseason, I don't think they're going to be desperate to give Malik Willis that first opportunity. They might give him a fair shot in a competition. But And they did, they did trade up, but it was only from 90 to 86. It was only four picks. So it wasn't like it was a, a dramatic difference when it came to their draft capital. So I have to admit, I think if Ryan Tannehill stays healthy, he starts 17 games for Tennessee this year. But we'll point out that, you remember a few years ago, when Tennessee benched Marcus Mariota for Ryan Tannehill, Mike Vrabel was actually really funny and honest. He was just like, yeah, I just want to, I don't know if this is going to work. I just want to spark the team. Now it did. It worked out spectacularly. But I, I, I think it would take a significant decline in Ryan Tannehill's performance for Tennessee to bench him in midseason. I don't think that is especially likely, even if fans want it to happen. Richard R. Klein Jr. asks about the Seahawks. He says, are the Seahawks going to be better than people think? Good coaching. Some might disagree, but well, I'll leave it. Lots of talent. Again, some might be a little skeptical, but definitely some talented players for sure. And experienced, if not great quarterbacks. And he says, Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. Well, yes, Trent Dilfer did win a Super Bowl, but that was with one of the greatest defenses in the history of football, allowing a little over 10 points per game in 2000. I don't know that the Seattle Seahawks of 2022 are going to be quite that good on defense. But here's what I will say. The Seahawks are better than people thought a year ago when they were eighth in the NFL in DVOA. And yes, I recognize DVOA is not infallible. You're not going to win or lose games based on DVOA, but... They were better than the Cardinals. They were better than the Chargers, the Saints, the Eagles, the Bengals who made it to the Super Bowl, Tennessee, who were the top seed in the AFC, the the Raiders who made it to the postseason. I mean, they were much better than people were giving them credit for. They were very unlucky in close games, which ironic given that wrote that they were going to be worse in close games the year before, and it did not work out that way. But if Russell Wilson had come back and they just kind of run it back with that roster, they would have projected to be a playoff team. Now, they did not run it back. They went and traded away Russell Wilson for a, a haul of players and picks, including Drew Locke, who's going to be their most likely starter. They could still add Baker Mayfield. I don't think it's out of the question. If we're assuming Locke is going to be their starter with Geno Smith coming off the bench, they'll be better than people think, but I don't think they will be very good. I think they will be probably in that same six and nine seven and ten ballpark and there are people who say hey look we're just as good as we were without russell wilson that's a great move but they were much better last year than i think people realize the difference between the 20 
2020 Seahawks and the 2021 Seahawks was really not all that significant. Just a lot of luck in 2020, not as much luck in 2021. Mitchell May 33 asked another quarterback question about kind of the rebuilding process, which I think is an interesting question. Do you think he asked, or they asked, that the quarterback should be the last part of a rebuild unless you have a generational talent like Lawrence, Payton, or Luck? It just seems so much better to build up a team before getting a quarterback as a franchise quarterback and drag a bad team under contention of getting a superstar. So this is an interesting question. And I think I would say first and foremost, there should be no set rule. It, it, it's not better to do it one way or the other, to have a franchise quarterback or to get everything else and then try to get the franchise quarterback. I don't think there is a, a clear path. I would say, number one, what did you inherit? You know, did you inherit a good quarterback? Did you pick up um, someone who can start for a couple of years while you're looking for that guy? Did you inherit a great offensive line? And so you can take a shot on a quarterback earlier because you don't have to build that up. Do you have a superstar receiver? Um, are you going to be trading any of those guys? Are they going to be good in a couple of years if it takes a couple of years to land that quarterback? I think those are all questions you have to ask for your specific organization, your specific spot before you make a decision. Um, then I'd ask what's easily available. You know, Are you going to be in the market like the Colts were a year ago and be able to get Phillip Rivers in free agency? Are you going to be able to add someone like a Teddy Bridgewater who's going to be okay? You know, I, I think maybe you're more desperate if there aren't veteran, competent quarterbacks available, which isn't always the case. I think the other part of it is there's the question of, is the general manager doing what's best for the team or what's best for the general manager? Because I think one of the reasons general managers anchor themselves to a quarterback as quickly as possible, number one is hope. You don't want to watch a bad football team all year with no hope at quarterback. But number two, I think there's that fear, understandably so, that they'll stumble around with bad quarterbacks for a couple of years and then get fired before they find someone they're in love with and make a big trade to get that guy. Um, I can understand why they would do that. Uh, but I, you know, I think the best thing for the team is probably to wait until you have a guy you absolutely think can be a top 10 quarterback. I think going and trading up for a guy who's okay just to get by, you're not going to hit on that guy frequently, frequently enough to make it worth your while. I think it's too easy to find those guys. And I think as teams do grow more comfortable, with the new sort of salary paradigm with quarterbacks where it is so much cheaper to draft a guy uh, and have a, you know, if you're going to have the 20th best quarterback in the NFL, it's better to draft him and have him be worth $5 million a year, as opposed to paying that guy 35 or $40 million a year. Um, I think those guys who are making 35 to 40, they're more likely to be free agents. It's going to be more likely to get those guys on the cheap in the years to come. So I do think that I would lean towards waiting to take my shot, but it's a tough decision if you're actually the guy making the decision in NFL front offices are the, the women as well, I should say, now that we have, thankfully, more diversity uh, and more women in NFL front offices, thankfully. Let me finish up with this question from Generic User 2020, and I really like it. I asked you guys for your suggestions as well last week. I'm going to run through my pick and some of your picks and why I think they might qualify or not qualify. Generic User 2020 asks, what is the dumbest? worst or most inexplicable personnel move of the last five years. Not bad luck due to an injury, but just flat out didn't make sense at the time and history proved the consensus right. Now, the, the arguments Generic User 2020 brings up, I don't love. Charles Leno Jr. being cut, bad move, not the dumbest decision I've ever seen. Sam Darnold trade, pretty bad, not gonna lie, but not the worst decision I've ever seen. Nelson Aguilar signing, 
I, I hated. I said it was bad at the time. Patriots fans were mad at me. It wasn't even that bad of a season. He didn't drop anything catastrophic. It was just he was there. But that's not the worst move ever by any means. So I wouldn't say those three. The one I brought up, I think, is the popular favorite. Doesn't mean it's the right answer, just the most popular one. The Cardinals getting DeAndre Hopkins and I think a swap of fifth round picks for David Johnson, whose contract was underwater, and a second round pick. Just a horrific, horrific trade for the Texans. I think one of those moves where when everyone saw it, nobody could believe it. It felt like Adam Schefter was wrong. Adam Schefter, by the way, not wrong, unsurprisingly. Of course, Adam Schefter is going to be right about this. Just an absolutely inexplicable trade. And yes, DeAndre Hopkins has signed a massive extension since that deal. The Cardinals have not had much success. They, they have not won a playoff game yet. You would make this trade 100 times out of 100, knowing what you know two years later. Even if you knew DeAndre Hopkins was going to get suspended, you would still make this trade. So no issues with that being the worst decision for me. I also brought up the Raiders taking Clellan Frill for um, a, a player who was a first-round grade. So I don't think you could say he was a, a out-of-nowhere pick, but a guy who I think everyone expected to be available in the middle of the first round. A guy who did not have an NFL you know, top tier defensive player ceiling. And I think the argument at the time was, okay, well, he's not going to be Khalil Mack, but at least he'll be a solid player. And and Clellan Farrell is not a solid player. He is a borderline NFL player right now. Maybe he'll be better after leaving the Raiders. Certainly plenty of defenders, Arden Key comes to mind, have been better after leaving Las Vegas, but just a brutal pick, just an absolutely brutal pick where everybody at the time said this makes no sense and it didn't it doesn't look good with hindsight not a great draft for defensive players in the first round but you did see guys like um brian burns superstar in carolina rashawn gary who was so good last year for the packers um jeffrey simmons phenomenal for tennessee last year you know there were young pieces who played well on defense who the raiders passed up to take Colin Frell when they could have traded down could have added more picks just a totally messy situation for the Raiders there at four. But I think that Hopkins trade is worse. Now let's, let's go over some of the ones you guys brought up. A lot of people brought up letting go of Tom Brady, who was signed for two years, and I think $50 million by the Buccaneers. Obviously worked out well. They've made it, they won one Super Bowl, deep playoff run as well in year two. Of course, a totally different franchise after Tom Brady got there. And I think... The choice the Patriots made the year earlier that offseason, or the, earlier that summer, so they, they got rid of Brady, obviously, when his contract ran out, but they gave Brady an extension to clear out cap space and then gave Brady the opportunity to add a clause where he could not get franchised. And I think the franchise tag would have totally changed those negotiations. Brady would have been franchised. Maybe he retires. Maybe he retires before they franchise him. Maybe he signs a new deal. But Brady would not have moved on if the Patriots could have kept him around. They would have made it work financially. The worst part about all this is that I believe they cleared out that cap space because they wanted to sign Antonio Brown, who ended up playing one game for them against a a Dolphins team that was actively tanking at the time. So I, I think that's probably pretty horrific altogether. I don't think letting go of Brady was the move because I don't think they had much of a choice, but I do think that sort of cap situation and that cap construction to create space for Antonio Brown looks pretty bad in hindsight. 
People brought up the Seahawks trading for Jamal Adams, a move I did not like at the time, although nowhere near as much as the DeAndre Hopkins move. I think on paper, it didn't look great. I think in hindsight, it looks worse. I think the Seahawks were seeing Jamal Adams as a as a sort of truly special positionless difference maker. And to be fair, he did have nine and a half sacks in 2020 in a Pro Bowl year for the Seahawks. Last year, of course, a mess. He was injured, didn't play at a high level. Um, still a guy who teams target in coverage. He's not never going to be a great coverage safety. And I think if the Seahawks do move to more too high looks, it's not going to play to his strengths as a box defender. Um, so yeah, a pad hoof. And I think I wouldn't have given up two first round picks. But I think it looks worse this year than it did a year ago, where it was, uh, I don't think I would do that, but at least Jamal Adams is really good. Like, I think Jamal Adams is a better football player than the guy we saw in 2021. So I'm not, I don't like it, but I think the Hopkins trade was worse. The Taysom Hill contract, I mean, uh, it depends on what you consider the Taysom Hill contract. I mean, he's, he's certainly under 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 contract now for about $10 million per year. A four-year $160 million, that's just uh, cap nonsense. That is nothing to, to take seriously. I, I think keeping Taysom Hill around as a relatively expensive tight end who happens to occasionally play quarterback, it's tough. It's tough to really justify. And I think the hard part is the Saints have repeatedly chosen other quarterbacks to play ahead of Taysom Hill when they've had the opportunity, whether it's been Teddy Bridgewater, whether it's been Jameis Winston, whether it's been the other guys in that offense. I feel like even when Taysom Hill has had the opportunity to play, they've gone another direction. So I think having Taysom Hill under contract, even given his utility in other spots, for $10 million a year, it's, it's just really hard to justify. Picking up Sam Darnold's fifth-year option, bad. Not not great. I, I think when they made that trade, it's hard to make that trade without believing that Sam Darnold's going to be worth his fifth-year option. And, and I think the, the trade itself was bad. Maybe the fifth-year option element makes it worse because I think – we sort of saw this with Daniel Jones, right? Where the argument makes sense to not pick up the option because if it works out, hey, you can still franchise him. It's a good problem to have when you have a good quarterback and maybe you have to pay him a little too much. The Panthers could have made that work. Guaranteeing the option for a guy who had never been good? I mean, it only makes sense if you think that Sam Darnold was going to be a player who looked dramatically different outside of his time with the Jets. And clearly the Panthers did that because they traded significant draft capital to get Sam Darnold. So... I think it's bad. I think it looks worse with hindsight. I think the combination of trade and fifth-year option, pretty terrible. But I do think there were people who thought Sam Darnold was going to be different, where he was going to improve dramatically. And after that first three-week stretch to start the year, where he was playing from ahead of the entire time and Christian McCaffrey was healthy, thought he looked like a different guy. Obviously, things changed. And compare it to the Hopkins deal, I don't think anybody thought the Hopkins trade was a good idea. That's the difference between the Hopkins deal and the Darnold contract and the Darnold trade. Oh boy, Nick Foles getting $45 million fully guaranteed from the Jaguars after a, a good playoff run or half a good playoff run with the Eagles and then a solid playoff run the following year. Pretty bad. And I think the toughest part is there was no one else really in the market to pay Nick Foles that much money. The Jaguars paid like 30 plus million for 117 pass attempts from Nick Foles that year. And I think the worst part is 
the argument that was being you know sort of shopped around afterwards to justify the deal when there was no one else willing to spend that much money on Nick Foles was that the Jaguars had to pay him that much to make sure he was respected as a voice in the locker room and I think that that is an example of if that's the best argument you can come up with you need to do something else that did not work at the time looked bad with hindsight I will say though a lot of these moves look worse with hindsight the Jaguars were able to get out of that deal and send him to the Bears for a mid-round pick so I would say trading for Nick Foles after he struggled with the Jaguars might be even worse than acquiring Nick Foles for that much money in the first place given that they were able to get out of that deal trading up for Mitch Trubisky over Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson this was a terrible move that video of the Bears uh, the Bears um, in, it Bears in, in their draft room clapping hands about how they got their guy and how they had they'd had blinders on him for months pretty much like the classic example when you want to talk about how nobody knows anything about the draft and how all for all the amount we put in all the work we put in all the research all the analysis all the experts all the scouts nobody knows anything man the, the Bears were so confident that they had drafted the best quarterback in that class when behind him was Maybe the greatest quarterback who's ever lived. And Sean Watson, who uh, we, you know what I'm going to say about Sean Watson. Obviously, the off-field stuff is horrific. Um, but a guy uh, before last year was considered to be not that much different from Mahomes, a franchise-caliber quarterback for Trubisky, who flashed at times, but was pretty much always just a guy. Um, I, I, I think this is terrible in hindsight. It, it probably looks worse than any of these moves in hindsight. But... This was not seen as as particularly uh, outlandish at the time. I mean, yes, the Bears screwed up, and yes, their overconfidence is ridiculous, and no no team should be that confident. They didn't need to trade up for Trubisky in the first place. They could have stayed put and just landed the greatest quarterback who has ever lived. But I, I if you look back at the um, the Bob McGinn poll for quarterbacks for that year, that where he interviews people in the NFL, I don't think the Bears were the only team who felt that way. Like with Pharrell, I think the Raiders, there were probably other teams who thought he was that good, but I don't think the vast majority of teams in the NFL felt like Colin Pharrell was a top five pick. With Mitch Trubisky, I think there were a fair number of teams who thought he was the best quarterback in that draft class. I don't think people saw Patrick Mahomes turning into Patrick Mahomes or the Saints who have talked about how they wanted him. They would have traded up. I know it's hard to believe that the Saints of all teams would not have made a move up to get a quarterback. Uh, wouldn't have traded up for a guy they like, but they would have if they knew it was going to be Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes would have been the first overall pick. Teams would have traded 10 first-rounders to get Patrick Mahomes. So I, I think that Mitch Trubisky was the pick at the time. And respecting the logic of the question, which is uh, flat-out didn't make sense at the time, quote-unquote, I don't think people thought that about Trubisky. I think there were arguments to be made. I think that he would not been a not won the competition in North Carolina until his final season, um, that he had not been playing for a great team i think those are fair arguments but i think that it was not the consensus opinion last one hiring urban meyer well sure didn't work out well i i I will admit i I thought urban meyer would be better i didn't know if he'd be a great coach i didn't think he'd be a great long-term coach but i did think he'd be better in year one and I, I mean, you knew pretty quick. Like once the weight, the the strength coach stuff happened, like forty eight hours after his hire, I think that probably told you it was not going to be a great time. That he was going to try and just railroad stuff through, and it did not work. I don't think anyone saw what was going to happen with him 
not flying with the team, getting caught, you know, grinding on someone or getting grinded on at his own bar in Ohio, kicking his own player. I mean, all that stuff, no one expected that, or at least the vast majority of people didn't expect that. So maybe the worst move of this entire bunch when it comes to hindsight, Ebermeyer, probably less qualified to coach a team than the vast majority of people listening to this show, given how he performed. But I don't think it was perceived as quite that bad at the time. I think people thought it would be a disaster, but this was a different level of disaster. So to me, I think it's the Hopkins trade. I, I think you could maybe make a case for the Patriots clearing out space for Antonio Brown after he was, uh, you know, almost got into a fight with Mike Mayock and almost froze his own toes off and then getting him for one game before uh, releasing him after uh, allegations of, of inappropriate behavior off the field not doing their due diligence, but man, a lot of bad moves here. Turns out the NFL, they're smart, but they're not that smart. Thankfully, that also is the case for me as well, because I I certainly have made plenty of stupid uh, opinions, stupid decisions in the past. You can read all about on ESPN.com. Well, guys, mailbag is closed for this week. Thanks so much for listening. This is going to be the last show for a few weeks. I am going on my honeymoon, so I will be taking a couple weeks off. I'll be back, I believe, later in June or early July. So hope you guys enjoyed the mailbag. Hope you guys are enjoying the summer. I'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks so much for listening. More on the way in a couple weeks.